What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Forbid empathy. Please. Trust no one. Fight only the battle you're paid to fight. Man, Fincher's got so many rules about fighting. Michael Fassbender there in the filmmaker's latest, The Killer, which is new to Netflix. We've got reviews of The Killer and The Marvels. It's all ahead. Trust no one, not even Nick Fury, on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. For all the box office pundits out there who are eager to hammer another nail in the MCU coffin or the coffin, maybe for superhero movies at large, your message, Josh, to all the haters out there, with apologies to Monty Python, not dead yet. I mean, financially, as a business model, maybe as a good time at the movies. I don't think so. I love that I don't even have to go to your website or log into Letterboxd or pay attention to any social media channels when you drop a new review. I just get texts randomly from people we know that say things like, Josh is insane to give the Marvels a positive review. It legitimately might be the worst comic book movie ever made. I I have a sense of where that text is coming from, and I would advise you to do as I did when I received Uh the message via a different channel. Ignore it. Later in the show, Josh will share his thoughts on Nia DaCosta's The Marvels, plus Massacre Theater, and more. Let's get to David Fincher's The Killer, which is playing exclusively on Netflix after a limited run in theaters. Michael Fassbender returns after a long hiatus to play the title character, a buttoned-up contract killer who goes on the run when a job goes awry. The film opens with a very Fincher credit sequence, a lot of rapid cuts showing what appear to be a dozen or more intricately planned killings set to a propulsive score by regular collaborators Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Then the music abruptly ends and we meet Fassbender's unnamed killer, Alone in an abandoned WeWork office space, he greets us and almost exclusively communicates in voiceover. Consider yourself lucky if our paths never cross. Except luck isn't real, nor is karma, or sadly, justice. As much as I'd like to pretend these concepts exist, they just don't. One is born lives their life, and eventually, one dies. You remember the part in Greta Gerwig's Barbie when Margot Robbie's character breaks down and says, I'm not stereotypical Barbie pretty. And before everyone in the audience could even finish the thought themselves, the narrator intones, note to the filmmakers, Margot Robbie is the wrong person to cast if you want to make (laughs) this point. Well, The killer never gets so explicitly meta, but in the opening sequence, our main character explains that his job as a hitman necessitates not being seen. And since that's impossible in our modern world, his only recourse is to at least avoid being memorable. I wonder if I was the only person watching who instantly thought, note to filmmakers, Michael Fassbender is the wrong person to cast if you want to make this point. I don't care how monotone his voice is, how much his haircut kind of sucks, how much you dress him up like a German tourist, as the character himself describes his outfit choices, or how much charisma you drain from him, he's still Michael freaking Fassbender. 
he doesn't exactly just blend in, ever. And there are moments, occasionally accelerated heartbeat or not, where Fassbender's unnamed man on the move exhibits all the hallmarks of the coolest, most in control, most meticulous movie assassins we've ever had the pleasure of watching. Espousing aphorisms that reflect an acute understanding of the universe's unflinching hostility towards our individual happiness. My process is purely logistical, narrowly focused by design. I'm not here to take sides. It's not my place to formulate any opinion. No one who can afford me needs to waste time winning me to some cause. I serve no God or country. I fly no flag. Consider yourself lucky if our paths never cross. Except luck isn't real, nor is karma, or sadly justice. Very hardened, very cynical bits of wisdom. Except this is also the same character who at one point says, maybe the single dorkiest thing any screen assassin has ever uttered? WWJWBD. What would John Wilkes Booth do? I'm sure we'll talk about Fassbender, but his casting and his performance interest me less, to start anyway, than considering the extent to which Fincher, in collaboration with Seven scribe Andrew Kevin Walker, has constructed his entire movie on such contradictions. Does the killer try and fail to have it both ways, you know, that old chestnut, as some argue Fincher's Fight Club does? Or does it harness its contradictions to exciting and entertaining effect, as some argue Fincher's Fight Club does? Yeah, if you take Fight Club as a comparison, I think this is a clearer delineation that this is not a guy who's very cool or we should root for or is exciting in any way, which brings us towards the Fastbender performance area. But maybe we should set that aside. I, I think the movie and I think Fastbender himself does a pretty good job of draining that charisma purposefully. So um, uh, that's the point here. But yeah, going back to Fight Club, you know, I, I'm on the side of that, although it's been adopted by certain viewers um, as a model, as a, a rule for life. Uh, I think it is clear in its convictions that that is not what it sets out to do, but also exciting in a way that the killer is not. Um, and this is not a boring film. I mean, there is a lot of excitement in the filmmaking and just the compositions of some of these images we get. Uh, it, it's sort of a, you know, and this isn't, this isn't a new way to describe Fincher's films, but it's gorgeously sterile, you know, where, where Fight Club is maybe gorgeously exciting, as I said, or, or, or just it's sexy. Fight Club is sexy in a way that I don't think the killer is, even though it is also gorgeous. Um, so yeah, just taking those two as a point of comparison, I think it was pretty clear for me, at least as soon as I recognize that when that early assassination attempt goes wrong and this isn't explicit, but I felt like he had almost distracted himself by his own inner monologue. Yeah. <laughs> like if he had just shut up right. and quit talking <laughs> about what he's doing, he probably would have got the shot. Right. I know. So from that point, you're kind of tipped off and you're tipped off by the fact that Fincher is making this thing, that this is going to be a dark joke, right? This could possibly be one big dark joke. I think it's more than that, but I think it is essentially that. Um, and so for me, I'd, I'd put it, you know, as a, um, a successful but not groundbreaking Fincher enterprise. The contradiction you're talking about, I think, is there. I think it runs up against genre tropes for the hired killer subgenre in a way that isn't always successful when we go into the, you know, 
when it turns personal, let's just say, Adam, mm-hmm. I think I think I felt like, okay, we're grinding some creaky gears here, and I don't know if that's to a new purpose, um, whereas what Fassbender is doing in his performance, this overall darkly comic tone that Fincher is bringing, I think that's kind of fresh for the genre, but having him suddenly become more involved because someone close to him gets hurt and that, you know, this sort of stuff. I don't know. Maybe you'll convince me that the movie does more with that than I thought it did. I don't know if I can convince you of that. I would just say, I see this movie as directly in contrast and maybe in some ways, even in dialogue with those movies, because those movies are all about that journey And we know from the very beginning of those films that something is going to happen eventually to turn him. And we're going to see that humanity and that empathy come through. And this character right from the beginning is someone who is trying to convince us and himself that that's who he is, except it's the opening scene where basically we don't fully know it until he gets to his house and that personal angle kicks in. But he's that guy. I think, really right from the beginning. And to your point, he's trying to convince us and maybe even try to convince himself that he's someone different. So the whole movie is actually, it's it's engaging with these contradictions in a way that those other movies I don't think really have any interest in. They just want to get the, they just want to get the assassin on that treadmill, on that trajectory to where they're eventually going to go and feeling all their humanity. I think he's got it in him from the very beginning. And, and so that's what makes this film engaging in a different way. Even the, the line that I read tipped me off and there's lots of elements that can tip you off. A lot of things he says that tip you off, as you noted. But even that line, consider yourself lucky if our paths never cross, except luck isn't real, nor is karma or sadly justice. The tip off there is the inclusion of the word sadly, I think. You can hear any other super Mm, jaded movie character saying that line, maybe a bit gruffer, maybe even more intentionally. But if they just said that, except luck isn't real, nor is karma, nor is justice, that takes on a completely different meaning than when you throw in or sadly justice. Because that tells us right away that this character is someone who at least understands the concept of justice, would like to live in a world where he believes justice actually does exist. He just knows from his experience that it it doesn't, or most often doesn't. So I like the way the movie plays with those little contradictions quite well, a bit. And to your point, you know, that whole bit he goes into about measuring how many people are born each day and how many mm-hmm. people die each day and the number of lives he's taken, you know, don't even make a tick of difference according to those proportions. No one would bother to make that defense if they didn't right. really feel it. If right? they didn't think about it all if they the didn't time. Think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, I mean, I'm pretty convinced this guy's a sociopath, <laughs> and I think, and there's a little touch in the performance that I love. A rare break of this monotone performance. Uh, I think it's at an airport bathroom where he looks in the mirror and flashes what, in his mind, is a friendly smile. And it's like possibly the scariest thing in the whole film. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, that, that'll pass. And he leaves the bathroom. So, so yeah, um, definitely, you know, uh, maybe a slightly more interesting exploration of this type of psyche um, that we might get in a film hitting all of these same beats. Yeah. And the humor, the humor is the other, the other part of it here that, that you mentioned. And I guess the, the question is how funny 
did you, you being you, Josh, personally, and how funny anybody out there listening found the movie, ultimately, if you look at how this movie is described, and certainly what I thought it was going to be, it's an action movie, it's adventure, it's crime. IMDb has those headings. It's a crime thriller, it's a mystery. It is, of course, a hitman movie. Nowhere in any of those descriptions does it say what the movie really is, and I think it truly is this this dark comedy. You have to look at, of course, and you can't avoid, the fact that he's this sad bastard who's always playing the Smiths. That's the that's the movie's most prevalent joke, right? Yeah. That it just keeps keeps returning to. That, that he, right there, he's I took, relentless. I took personally. It. I think that's I'm just, sure you did. I think that's just not fair. I mean, uh, to to suggest that this is the soundtrack of a sociopath. Come on, quick. Well, of course it is, first of all. But but I say that as someone I say that as someone who doesn't know the Smiths at all. This is the rare case where I was watching this movie with Sophie right next to me, and she knew every song and every line, and she even could anticipate the needle drops, Josh. And it's usually the case where we're watching a movie and some artist is invoked or is constantly played, and I'm the one pointing out the meaning behind it or why this choice was made. I have to admit, never listened to the Smiths ever. Well, I've never, I've never heard that. a song. I've never heard a song that I heard in this movie, but you've got that, right? You've got the John Wilkes Booth line. You've got him making a crack about the, the character, the brute who he ends up getting in an incredible fight with. I do love that sequence in this yeah, that's film good. where he says, maybe a mandatory 30 day waiting period for creatines, not a bad idea. You could go on and on, and it's it's just so wonderfully delivered in this deadpan way by Fassbender that I think does make you question. Wait, am I am I supposed to be laughing? Is this is this funny? But I do think all of that, and of course all the killing, does belie how funny this movie really is, and how rooted it is again in these contradictions. Or I'll use another term, which is irony. It's it's all built on this irony. And this disconnect between what the killer says and what the killer actually does. I saw a critic that I'm pretty sure we both respect on Twitter a couple of days ago make a crack about the narration. And if it's taken at face value, because it's just one tweet randomly that I saw, it seemed to suggest that there's a better version of this movie minus the voiceover. And I couldn't disagree more. There's a very different version of this movie without the narration. And it's one in which the protagonist, I think, comes off as way, way, way cooler and comes off way more conventionally. But with the narration, we not only get these constant contradictions, but for me, we do get someone who seems to be unraveling basically right from the very beginning. And it's the the substance of the narration that betrays that, the way he's often repeating himself. And when not repeating himself, he's he's really just coming up with variations on the same theme. It doesn't flow at all. None of that opening five to seven minutes leading up to the shot that he takes and misses, none of it flows like this very wise, very experienced, very in control narrator. We expect him to be based on how it all how it all begins and and the the character he seems to be trying to portray. It just doesn't it doesn't connect. It's almost this is what I'm trying to argue. I think it's bad writing. 
but I think it's deliberately bad writing. It's not Andrew Kevin Walker not being a good writer. It's him making this character a really terrible writer who's throwing together randomly all these affirmations and aphorisms because he's so bored and he's so disillusioned at this point. And then, yes, the biggest joke of the film is that you have a character who's constantly saying, it isn't personal, it isn't personal, it can't be personal, yet everything he does is about it being personal. And he's always saying, no empathy, no empathy, no empathy. And yet most of the choices he makes are driven by some empathy. Mm, I might argue that, but I've got a lot to catch up on here. Let me go back to your question about the humor. Um, And no, I don't think I laughed out loud once during watching this. I think it was more in retrospect, you know, recognizing, again, knowing, knowing it's Fincher. But I think it was more in retrospect is like, yeah, you know, that was that was kind of a a funny film, right? Um, I don't know that I've laughed out loud at a lot of Fincher's movies, though they often have this streak of dark humor, right? I think they all do. I think go back to Fight Club. That's maybe the one that I did laugh out loud at. So there's there's some sort of connection there as well. But yeah, the the voiceover thing, um, no, of course you can't remove it from this movie. That that's the point of the movie. Mm-hmm. And to to your suggestion that it would make him cooler, let's look at the movie that I feel like this is most in dialogue with. It's Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Samurai, where you have Elaine Delon as mm-hmm. perhaps the coolest killer that ever lived, who it's been a while since I've seen it. I don't know if he says 10 words in that film. So it's the exact opposite, right? And um, you could point to that as here is why that film is so much more suspenseful. That character is so much more um, compelling. I agree with all of that, but I don't think, I think the killer is working against that film rather than trying to live up to it. So I can kind of hold those two things in my mind at once. And it's exactly what you're saying, right? It's to undercut this guy. The narration Mm -hmm. is to undercut this guy. It's almost as if you're getting this, it's like a, a, a master class in being a hitman from a deluded teacher and a narcissist, possibly a narcissist as Mm -hmm. well as in the mix here, right? He can't stop talking about himself. Ted Williams batted 344 lifetime. I'd be batting a thousand, except I won't take credit for watching some mob bookkeeper drop dead of a coronary. The only time nicotine, red meat, and marital stress did the hard part for me. That's part of the humor as well. The empathy thing is is interesting, though, and maybe I need to save this for when we get to spoiler, but I would say there are definitely situations where he is faced with targets who he could be empathetic to, who he could be empathetic about, but is not, is, is cruel, merciless in the manner that he has been talking to us, you know? And I do wonder if that's setting up where we go by the end of the film and if that's kind of what you're referring to or if you saw more empathetic I did. gestures earlier. Yeah, which... I think there's one, there's at least one big one, Josh, okay. which I will say we probably should table some of this. I'm not going to spoil anything here, but we can dive into it more when we get to the end and our reading of some things. When we talk about spoilers, that will come not just later in this review, it will come very much later and will be separate. But here's my argument. Any case where he has the choice or he is about to kill someone and he decides to kill them, there is, in my mind, a purpose that overrides for this character, his ability to be empathetic, 
But in one key moment, and there is one other one later, but in one key moment earlier in the film, about midway through, he has an encounter with a character where this character asks for Is it the mercy. one who makes the request? Yeah, who makes yeah, yeah. a request. Okay. Who makes Let's a request, revisit that. Makes a request, and Josh, in that moment, if he was really the hardened, unempathetic person that he says he is, he would do exactly what he says in his voiceover to himself, and then he acts out in a contradictory way. He would he would completely disregard her request. Yeah. He doesn't do that, though. That is, as, as dark and gruesome as it might be, it is still empathetic because he listened to her request and he abided. It kind of works out for both of them, though, in that situation, which is maybe what we need to get into because it covers his butt a little bit too to honor that request. So I think you're I think it's true. He's definitely helping yeah. her out and could possibly cover himself. It's without, not how he would have done it without, without helping her, saying her out, but it, it does come into play. I'll give yeah, you that. It does. I mean, I think I think that's key. And I think since for me, the movie is wrestling with this central question or at least exploring the central dilemma of this character. I think it makes sense that we see that dilemma come to light there in that that scene. So I, I, I don't think it's I'll say pun intended. I don't think it's by accident that we get it playing out the way we do. I'm definitely with you on the samurai, but I'm going to give you a few other movies that that this movie made me think about or I felt like I was in dialogue with watching it. It was like if. Le Samurai, the the character Jeff Costello, was somehow inhabited by Patrick Bateman. I I got a lot of American Psycho out of this, especially that line, each and every step of the way, ask yourself what's in it for me. This is what it takes, what you must commit yourself to if you want to succeed. Simple. All this talk about succeeding and what you have to do and, and affirming to yourself these choices that you're making. And of course, that character also very much a sociopath, right? You're you're right about this character and you're right about that character. And, and the performances are, are in yeah, the same register too, they, for sure. They are. Good point. I know we already mentioned Fight Club. I do think this movie is very much of a pair with Fight Club. And I'll, I'll go down a little bit of a, a rabbit hole here for a second, a small one. But the voiceover, of course, has something to do with it. The contradictions, the unreliability of the narrator who's giving us that voiceover certainly does as well. But there's this anti-consumerist nature of it, too. Think about all the corporate name checks. Yeah, here. Definitely. Amazon, WeWork, Postmates, McDonald's, Starbucks, FedEx. I'm sure I missed some. Storage Wars, the TV show. Other TV shows, of course, are very notably mentioned as well. Uh, the Storage Wars part, I, I keep thinking about the old George Carlin bit about all the places we need to keep our stuff. We just have so much stuff. And there's even that reference to Gladwell's 10,000 hours, which he, he throws out, which, you know, Jeff Costello, even if he existed in this world, would never <laughs> – would never mention or give a reference to Malcolm Gladwell, but you've got all this technology, all these resources, so many things we can do in this world. To what end? The the corporate drone that Norton's character rebels against in Fight Club, on some level, is exactly who Fassbender's character claims he isn't. And yet, even killing is now totally lifeless and soul-sucking, and yeah. it's done from a distance. He makes that joke about, oh, I wish I, could, I wish I could have just a good poisoning. What about a nice, quiet drowning, right? Work, life. Josh, the world we live in now, 
It's all, it's all just efficiency. It's math. It's calculations. It's, it's Fitbits that tell you when your heart rate is too high and when it's, when it's just right. Those elements for me really crossed over nicely with Fight Club. And beyond that, you know, McDonald's, Amazon, these are tools. These are crucial yes. tools in this killer's arsenal. So I think you see so the, some of the sideswipes Fincher's making at capitalism there for sure. Absolutely. Did you have more films? Otherwise, I'll, I'll I did. Throw, okay. I've got one because it's going to blow your mind, <laughs> though, though, maybe not. Maybe you're going to mention it. I thought you might go here for a second. You teased me when you mentioned a French name. So here's here's my wildest take on on this film. And no, I'm not suggesting that Fincher is actually paying homage to it. I'm telling you the experience I had with the movie. This is David Fincher's Jean Dielman. If if. Chantel Ackerman employed voiceover. Routine, yeah. Yeah. A routine. And I, I'm glad she doesn't, mind you. We might hear Jean constantly reminding herself, stick to your plan. <laughs> and saying things like, it's amazing how physically exhausting it can be to do nothing. If you're unable to endure boredom, this work is not for you. Routine, structure, not getting emotionally involved with the people you do business with, never getting personal. There's a robotic approach that both Jean and the killer exhibit with respect to the the tediousness of their existences. They've made this deal with themselves and they both short circuit when something goes wrong, when the routine is broken, when something personal happens that they just can't dismiss, when their humanity is exposed. For Jean, it's the encounter with her second customer. For the killer, it's when it's when he misses and when this this consequence emerges for for someone he cares about those are those are intertwined and i saw it i saw it very much in that same vein as i watch jean dielman i think these characters are are surprisingly similar well and along those lines we haven't mentioned yet this based on a french graphic novel series so you have some regional some regional connections there too. No, the the one that came to mind for me is much more of a, a one one to one comparison. But Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog: The Way of the mm. Samurai. I was thinking this in terms of the narration. Right there, you have Forrest Whitaker reading sections aloud from this centuries old warrior code that um, probably carries a little bit more wisdom than what we get what we get from the killer here. So yeah. And the other thing that came to mind for me, Adam, and maybe you can answer this because I think you're a bigger fan than me than both of these filmmakers, even though I I admire both of them greatly. There were so many times during this movie watching the killer that I had to remind myself I wasn't watching a Soderbergh film. And, you know, beyond just Haywire obviously came to mind during sure. that fight sequence you mentioned of that with, one. with yeah. the brute, Best right? Yeah, yeah, but but I don't know. Yeah, and maybe that it's it's just it had that similar genre mm-hmm. exploration, burrowing into a genre and finding what little pieces you could make your own within it, sure. sensibility to it. Yeah, so, that's there, but elevated by a filmmaker who really knows his craft for sure. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I think that's there. I know, I know I already mentioned it, but that fight in Florida is something I, I really do think it's one of the best close proximity combat sequences. And look, I'm not a guy who watches a lot of fight scenes and thinks, Oh man, this is the greatest thing I've ever watched. Right. But it, it made me think about the great fight that's similar in a lot of ways in the born ultimatum. But it's brutal, right? I, it's I, like I think I like this one even better. And that's the word, Josh. It's 
It's brutal, but it's so precisely brutal. The the punches for me aren't, and I like a lot of the sequences in the John Wick films too, but the punches aren't Wick-esque. There is a weight yep. to every single kick yeah. or punch or Impalement. smashing of something exactly against their head or body. You feel it. You hear it. And of course, that that's also due to that great sound design and the mixture yeah. of the Ross and Reznor score where sometimes you can't tell if it's the score that's thumping or it's their bodies that's thumping or bumping into furniture. And then it's just so devious. I'm going to use the word devious of Fincher to film it as dark as he does, where they're almost silhouettes. So then it takes on an odd kind of beauty, actually, despite its brutality, watching these shadows go at it in this nighttime internal landscape that we get, for lack of a better term. But it also forces you as a viewer to kind of lean in and pay more attention. Mm -hmm. Like you're trying to see the brutality more clearly. Yeah. Which I think is, well, again, a little devious. And it merges – it merges their identities. You're not, you know, if you were rooting for whatever reason, I mean, this mm -hmm. is how movies go, right? We tend to root for the person we spend the most time with, no matter how heinous they are. But if you suddenly lose who's who in the shadows, all you're really left to confront is the violence and mm -hmm. the reality of that. Um, and that sort of stake you have in one of the fighters is set aside and you're just realizing you're watching two men hurt each other terribly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. And I suppose we do at least have to return to Fassbender and the question of his performance. You are overall, it seems, a little lukewarm on this film, or certainly lukewarm compared to me. I I did really love the reserve of the Fassbender performance and, and the way he embodied all those contradictions, save for one notable instance, which we will almost surely get into in spoilers. I'm not sure his eyelids ever move in the film. Do we do we see the guy blink once? And I know, of course, that can sometimes be an editing trick too, or you cut around it, but there are a lot of shots that stay very static on that character. And except for, you know, when he's napping on the job, which does happen, and his eyes are obviously closed, he is he is human, after all. He he never does blink. And again, that goes back to that robotic machine-like nature, but it's not just that there's something about watching him listen, watching him process. There's an unpredictability to it, even though, you know, you mentioned Josh, how the movie maybe gets on this path, this revenge path that we think is very familiar. There's still such an unreliability and unpredictability to this character that I never felt like I knew exactly where it was going to go or, or more importantly, what the character was going to do once he got there. And I think it all is rooted in some of these conversations. We haven't mentioned maybe the most fun sequence in the film, separate from that fight scene is just two people talking when it's Michael Fassbender and Tilda Swinton. Yeah. I might've laughed. I might've laughed when she told that story. That's that, that yeah. been an out loud. Yeah, yeah, you have to, you have to, but <laughs> watching him, you never know because he's so calculated and deliberate with his words. You never know when he's going to open his mouth when he's not in voiceover. You never know what he's going to say or what he's going to express. And I, I, I was hanging on that maybe a little bit more than you. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I think he does exactly what needs to be done here, and that is, as I said, drain the charisma, still bring all the qualities that you're talking about. It's not that he's uninteresting, and that's probably, mm -hmm. I imagine, a very difficult thing to do, is to 
drain your natural on-screen charisma yet still be a compelling character. I think he does that. For me, it's always the intensity for Fassbender, and I think that's still here in those watchfulness mm-hmm. sequences you're talking about. You you definitely know how intensely he is observing, whether it's his target or just anyone, once he's kind of on the run, right? Everyone, that sequence of the guy on the plane yeah. that he thinks may be following him, right? And the way he's watching him. So I think all of that is there. Um, yeah, I would say, I would say set apart from his relative absence in recent years, this would probably be a performance that would grab me more because it is distinct from that supernova intensity he brings to most performances. So if you're you're like you've been waiting for that fast spender, I would say that's not exactly this. Does not make it a bad performance. It's the one this film is asking for. Absolutely. The Killer is currently available exclusively on Netflix. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, we would love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We are going to get to some killer spoiler talk later in the show, and we'll do an up-to-date Fincher ranking, of course. Also, Nia DaCosta's The Marvels. I'll share a few thoughts. First, though, a couple of ways you can help the show. If you're a regular listener or just getting to know us, Would you mind taking a minute and giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Each one of these does help us reach new listeners. If you do take the time to give us a rating, we encourage you to go ahead and give us the full five stars. I mean, just saying, if you like the show and you say positive things, we had a listener this week, Frederick, we we love it, but we got three stars. And you said it was a great show and you you love listening. So you say, Josh, always don't sweat the star ratings. I'm sweating the star <laughs> ratings. Maybe Frederick thinks there's a few things we could improve upon. I don't know. I mean, maybe don't twist we his also, arm, Adam. We also like to thank Ja Blute 2003 over on Apple Podcasts who said this. They tend to lean into indie fare more than blockbusters. Hated Spider-Man No Way Home? Really? Yeah, really. But they are engaging, funny, and love their jobs. I haven't had something like it since Siskel and Ebert went off the air. Thank you for that. Another way to support us, join the Film Spotting family. Listen early and ad-free. You get the weekly newsletter. We're starting something new this week that we'll put out in the newsletter every week. We'll also share it here on the show, and that is we're going to take one movie from 50s Madness and kind of make it the 50s madness movie of the week, a film that we know is going to make the list, a movie that for us, Josh, and for Sam, though he did recently rectify this blind spot, are blind spots. And maybe you as a listener have already seen it. Maybe you've already done this homework, but we're going to isolate one movie every week leading up to madness just to kind of get the community talking about this film Maybe see some new reviews pop up over on Letterboxd and movie of the week number one. Why not? Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder after talking about Justine Trier's Anatomy of a Fall. Josh, should be good. Yeah, I've... Sam encouraged me after he watched that. I, I was... I could kick myself the night before seeing Anatomy of a Fall. I had that queued up, planned to watch it. Something else came up, didn't get to it. Um, but now, now's the time, now that it's the movie of the week. We also offer monthly bonus shows to Film Spotting family members. Had a really fun horror movie draft. Who who's winning that one? Last check, Josh. I can't remember who's mm-hmm. winning. Who's yeah. winning that horror? Mr. Chalk. Draft. Mr. Chalk. Yeah. That's who's winning it. Hey, I like my list. How dare you? <laughs> 
in November, and we're recording this soon, we're going to have our quarterly film spotting advisory board meeting. We're going to talk 2024 marathons and more, and our film spotting advisory board members will be integral in deciding what marathon topics we land on. You can be part of that. You can hear all of that and get complete archive access by joining the film spotting family, filmspottingfamily.com. We destroyed Thanos, but it's not over. My work is inevitable. There will always be more to finish it. What is this, Josh? A new Avengers movie? No, it's just the final trailer for Marvel's The Marvels, which inexplicably features the likes of Chris Evans' Captain America, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, and Thanos, none of whom, I'm told, appear in the film. Or maybe it makes total sense. As the Marvels went into its opening weekend facing dire box office projections, projections that were, for better or worse, accurate. But at least one of us here comes not to bury the Marvels or the MCU. Yes, Josh saw the film. Josh liked it. Before you tell all of us what you liked about it, what did you think of this trailer, which gives almost no indication of the movie's plot, works not only as a sequel to 2019's Captain Marvel, but also acts as the big screen debut of both Tayana Paris's Monica Rambeau, who's introduced in the WandaVision series, and Iman Vellani's Miss Marvel, the subject of her own Marvel series. And I'm going to go back to the, the trailer before that. I'm assuming you saw that at some point, Josh, before some movie you were waiting to digest. That trailer, and it's a trailer, I get it. The trailer seemed awful. I want to know, is the movie just better than that trailer, which often happens, or am I being too hard on the initial trailer? I, I, yeah, I don't. I think I saw the initial trailer, but I will say this one, which I had not seen until Sam shared it on our Slack. I, it's completely baffling and befuddling. Hmm. It's it's shocking how they're trying to reposition this film. And the truly unfortunate thing is not only that half the people in that trailer aren't in the movie. So if you go see it and they're not in there, you're going to be a little disappointed. It's that it's underselling what is the best thing about the Marvels. And that's the dynamic between these three leads. You wouldn't know that Iman Vellani is even in this movie. I think there's like three cutaways to her and maybe she gets one line, one quick shout, but as Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan in the streaming series, you know, it's her, it's Tiana Paris, and it's Brie Larson. The scenes they have together are they're electric, fun, and vibrant in a way that does bring you back to that repartee that the Avengers had. Maybe that's what they're hoping to suggest by recalling those original Avengers, but then it might be a good idea to also show it on the screen because there are plenty of scenes. And I think that is in the earlier trailer. So, you know, I don't know that that first trailer had me, you know, counting down the days till the Marvels, but certainly I could see that there was some chemistry among these three leads. And that's absolutely on screen here enough for me. I mean, this is just an inconvenient film, Adam. It's inconvenient for everyone. Here we are, all are my myself included, knives out, waiting to just like bring the MCU to the guillotine and say, we're done once and for all. Can we just please move on with our lives? I have the unfortunate news to say the executioner is going to go half to sit back at his desk, hold <laughs> off. I think, I think there will be another chance. If I have this right, there's like, next up is a Deadpool three, which I didn't yeah, even understand. <laughs> 
I didn't even understand was part of the MCU. So that might be where, you know, I put the hood on myself. But as I said, this is a lot of fun. It's not one of the best MCU movies, but that interplay, which I think director Nia DaCosta does deserve some credit for getting that chemistry at work here is good. I think the action sequences are strong. They're of a very different type than what we were just talking about in the killer. It's very much the sort of sanitized Marvel action, but there's a fun conceit here where the three leads because of some complications I won't get into due to the villains shenanigans. When they use their powers, they switch places wherever they are in the universe. I don't know that the movie, you know, this isn't like Buster Keaton where it's that precisely timed action comedy. I think it cheats a little bit in that conceit, but it does give a little surprise and pep to the action scenes, uh, which DaCosta does handle quite well. So that's all I've got to say about the Marvels. I'm not going to convince anyone who hates the MCU or is ready to drop the guillotine that, you know, this is worth seeing. I don't know who I am trying to convince. Maybe those people who are, who are on the edge, those people who liked Captain Marvel, which I happen to quite a bit, and really those people who did watch Ms. Marvel, which was a strong streaming series. Vellani is the real deal. She is so... Here's why she's crucial, Adam. The character here, Kamala Khan, she's a teenager who is an Avengers fan, right? Particularly for Captain Marvel. And so what they've done here is they have a super fan embedded within the story that her enthusiasm carries over, right? It's part of the narrative because Vellani is such a dynamic presence. We feel that as well. She brings us in on it and it gave me enough of that pleasant MCU vibe that I remember from. I mean, I, I honestly, I'm not an apologist here. I haven't really loved a Marvel an MCU film since Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I think that's like six films ago. Some of them have been fine. Some I haven't liked at all. I think their worst they've ever made has come out in that stretch. That's the third Guardians of the Galaxy film. So I'm no apologist here, but sorry, everyone. This is fun. Wait, wait. <laughs> we can bury it. We can bury it next time. I can, I can see the poll quote now. Sorry, everyone. This is fun. Back put it off. on the poster. Put Back it on the off. Blu-ray. Put it on yeah. the Criterion. Josh that's Larson. Right. Okay, Back off for a little while longer. The Marvels is currently playing in wide release, if you see it, and agree or disagree with Josh, and I'm guessing a few of you do, go ahead and email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Happy American Thanksgiving, everyone, and apparently happy first week of December to us. We are going to take a couple weeks off for us to be able to fit in some much-needed movie-watching as prep for this show, prep for our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots, which are due in early December. So much viewing to catch up on and so many performances to consider and cinematography and editing and breakthrough filmmakers, you name it. We want to be as prepared as possible for that ballot and really for our top 10 show, the big top 10 of 2023 show that we're going to give you before Christmas. We will still have something to tide you over, though. We call them film spotting fixes, a little appetizer ahead of Thanksgiving. I know we said we were going to talk about it on this week's show. We'll save it for next week. We'll talk a little bit about Alexander Payne's new The Holdovers, not though it would have been fitting for Thanksgiving, 
what my wife told her sister it was called the leftovers no that's a that's a very different very different thing it's the holdovers we will also play for you our picks for the essential Werner Herzog which we recorded last month at Iowa City's Refocus Film Festival a topic that we did get very nervous about doing once we were in Iowa City because also in Iowa City that weekend and really the impetus for that content was that Mr. Werner Herzog himself was there. And I think I said this, I know I said it on Twitter. I don't know if I said it on the show, but Sam and myself are walking into the theater that day, that morning, and we go in a door, it turns out that was locked and we had to go around. But as we're, we're approaching that door, we see on the other side is Werner Herzog. And we're talking about the show. We're stressing out about the show. And there's Herzog himself. And so then we all got paralyzed by the thought, well, what if he's bored? And what if he walks into the theater and listens to us talk about the essential of Werner Herzog? I, I was envisioning, you know, Marshall McLuhan coming out in the movie theater in Annie Hall. You know nothing of my work. I was sure that was going to happen. And I'll give you this little nugget, this little Easter egg, because I'm not sure it will come through in the audio. When you're listening to our audio and we get to the end someone in the audience asks a question about Werner Herzog's voice and basically encourages me to do my Werner Herzog impression and I say no there's no way I'm going to even attempt that and then you say something about well why don't you mm -hmm. just ask him to say it he's standing right over there uh -huh. and I <laughs> legitimately thought Herzog had walked into the theater when you said that I was I was scared to death I got you. Uh, probably you probably did. my highlight, highlight of the weekend. <laughs> Maybe so. When we come back from our break, we will have thoughts on some of the titles we have caught up with over the holiday. Ridley Scott's Napoleon is coming out. Todd Haynes' May, December. Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. That opens the theaters the weekend we come back. And we definitely do expect to have some Miyazaki-related talk on that show as the master animator is the subject of our current deeply flawed and maybe in this case, just plain bad film spotting poll question. I mean, I don't feel that way. People must be coming down hard on producer Sam. He asks, and and I'm going to remove us from this equation. So just, just throw it all on Sam. He asks, in fact, he states actually, sorry, here we go with another apology. Big this week on film spotting. Sorry, you can only keep one Miyazaki. And Sam's options are Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, or other. Last week when we posed this question to our audience, I I had the courage to make a choice. Mm. One of us did not. I'm wondering if you've you have found more courage or are you going to wait for the results to come out? Well, your pick of spirited away. That's where you went, right? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna say it was chalk again, because it was. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's true in this case. I mean, I don't know if I have a sense of you know, where people are at with some of his, as far as their favorite films of his. But for me, I've been rethinking whether that should be put back in place with the two I was considering, which were My Neighbor Totoro and Princess Mononoke. And now I'm a little torn because I did feel like Totoro has to be it. I feel like it's just Mononoke is clearly a masterpiece, but also in a vein that other animated filmmakers have made this sort of adventure epic, right? It's an adventure epic as only only Miyazaki would do, but it is an adventure epic. I don't know that anyone else would make anything like Totoro ever, except Miyazaki. 
you pick Spirited Away and you might be able to say the same thing about Spirited Away. So now I'm almost more shifting <laughs> among those two. But if I'm being honest and I had to vote right now, I think I would go with Totoro. I just find it um, not only intellectually stimulating in a way that Spirited Away is, but just such an emotional powerhouse. Totoro, that, and and more of a, and I hate to use this phrase, but more of a children's film which I think it is, mm-hmm. and I do feel like those need to be taken more seriously in general in terms of cinema that makes me kind of want to throw my weight behind Totoro. But yeah, those three, you can't go wrong with any of those, I feel like. We would love to know what you think. You can vote in that poll, and you can leave a really angry comment directed at Sam, if you'd like, over at filmspotting.net. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got a pairing that is, you know, sometimes they surprise us with their pairings and sometimes it's like, yeah, that's exactly where you have to go. Had to be. Had to be. But it's because it's exactly where you have to go. Right. And this is Sofia Coppola's Priscilla alongside her very own Marie Antoinette. Cannot wait to listen to that one. Again, that's The Next Picture Show. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting prize. A couple of weeks back, we massacred this scene. So you got to the bar around 11 today. Where were you before that, just to cross that off? Well, I was home. I left at 9.30, got a cup of coffee, newspaper. I went to Sawyer Beach and read the news. Did you visit with anyone there? Well, I mean, I kind of go to Sawyer Beach for the solitude. So your wife has no friends here. Is she kind of standoffish? Ivy League rubs people the yeah. wrong way. She's from New York. She's complicated. She's got very high standards. Type A. Well, that can make you crazy if you're not like that. You seem pretty laid back. Type B. Speaking of which, Amy's blood type. God, I don't know. I have to look it up at the house. You don't know if she has friends. You don't know what she does all day. And you don't know your wife's blood type. Sure y'all are married. That was Ben Affleck and Kim Dickens in 2014's Gone Girl, written by Gillian Flynn, adapted from her own book and directed by David Fincher. That massacre was part of episode 943 when we reviewed and dove into some spoiler talk on Justine Trier's Anatomy of a Fall. So why that scene from Gone Girl? Nathan Keel in Alameda, California writes, one of my favorite scenes from probably my favorite book adaptation of the last decade. The scene comes from David Fincher's Gone Girl, another film much like Anatomy of a Fall that puts the marital relationship under a microscope to see if Nick Dunn, as the primetime interviewer calls him, probably the most hated man in America, is responsible for the disappearance of his wife, Amy. The evidence is calculated and mounting against Nick but it isn't until much later that the picture becomes clear about who's pulling the strings. By going back a decade to highlight 2014's Gone Girl for Massacre Theater, we can now look ahead to Fincher's next film. Yes, the movie we talked about this week, The Killer. Here is Darwin M. from Toronto, a perfect choice for this edition as it's one of my favorite Finchers and thrillers of the last 10 years, Gone Girl. The obvious tie-in is the premise, a spouse is dead, and their partner is the prime suspect, constantly under scrutiny by the law and their peers. Other connections that Darwin found, aside from the Fincher one, noted that both couples are comprised of writers. The spouse, accused of murder, had cheated on their significant other, and Sandra and Nick are both fond of drinking. Yes, as indeed I am. Nick Goodwin in St. Louis, Missouri says, Adam, I have to say you expertly played Nick as expertly as Affleck did. That is to say, bland and dead as a doornail. Great job. (laughs) 
<laughs> your your statuette is coming in the mail, I think. Affleck is underrated, and he's apparently underrated in this performance, as we're going to hear in our next email as well. David Zobel from Roswell, Georgia. This week's Massacre Theater is from Gone Girl, starring that a-hole, Ben Affleck. <laughs> underrated wow. as a human. Wow. Also, Sam changed the character's name to Jane because Rosamund Pike was in Pride and Prejudice as Jane Bennett. Yes, yeah, Josh, you should have Sam. gotten that. Went right I over know. my head. Sorry, Sam. I might have changed it to Miranda for her character in Die Another Day. Oh, and I know what my wife does all day, and I know her blood type. Does that make me less of a suspect asking for a friend? I, I don't know. David, I think that just makes you weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the blood type thing is fine, but you know what she does all day? That sounds a little creepy, David. I think <laughs> I think you're more of a suspect. Here's Richard Doyle in Winnipeg speaking for, I think, the majority of us, at least the majority of us men, I'm going to go so far to say. I not only don't know my wife's blood type, I don't know my own. Is is W a blood type? Can it's I not? Can I guess that? Yeah, it's not. But, oh, okay. but nice try. Thank you to everyone who entered Massacre Theater. Thank you to everyone who sent in a connection. So many more that we could have gotten to. But Josh, I'm going to ask you now to reach into the fairly brimming film spotting hat and pick out our winner. Our winner is, and apologies in advance if I get this wrong, Kirk, Kirk Gillenskog from South Weber, Utah. Congratulations, Kirk. And I'm going to say this real quick. I know there are people out there listening who have now come to hate Massacre Theater, four or five of them, Josh, because they've been promised for a while now their T-shirt or tote bag. And, you know, it's been a really tough semester. But here's the thing. Hmm. If you listen to this show the weekend it comes out, you may not have that T-shirt to wear or that tote bag to haul around. But give it another few days and you will because they're in the mail. In they're the in the mail. mail. They are. They're in the mail. I can't guarantee how how long it will take to get there. I didn't send them next day. Are you are you are you still trying to claim like supply chain issues here? I think Let's go with that. I, Can we go with that? I don't know. I think that's that's been done with for a while now. Well, Kirk, you can email feedback at filmspotting.net. You can tell us whether or not you'd like to claim your t-shirt, your film spotting tote bag, or as one recent winner did, Josh, you could claim a free trial membership in the Film Spotting family. Get access to some bonus content. Guess what? I can fulfill that one instantly. Yeah. You don't need the supply chain for that. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. One in which we did decide at the very end to change up the names because we thought that would be too obvious if we said both of the characters' names. Of course, we'll still try to give you a little bit of a clue with those characters' names. Are you worried, as our producer is, Josh, that not enough people may recognize this scene just because there's nothing about it that distinctly gives it away? I think... I think it's not going to be one of those, you hear the dialogue, you instantly know. But if you think about the context of the show, it's going to point you in a very direct direction. And mm -hmm. I think that'll lead you to a likely place. And plus, okay. they're going to have our performances, which are going to be, I feel like <laughs> this actor, this actor that I'm, you know, trying to inhabit here, uh -huh. I've actually watched a couple of his movies recently, one that I'd never seen before. So he's a little bit in my head. 
Uh-huh. And uh, that can only help me be authentic, right? Okay. Well, no, no, not necessarily. <laughs> I, I've got nothing to embody or inhabit this character with. Mm. And now you've you've committed the cardinal sin of massacre theater. You've basically set it up as if you know what choices you're going to make and you know what you're doing when we all know that you don't. Confidence is the first choice, Adam. This character does exude it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> the character and, and the actor, we might say. Confidence is the f- first choice. Is that what you said? I think so. Yeah. Consider I mean, that it my, sounded... like, my killer voiceover narration. That's where I was going. <laughs> when I'm brushing my teeth every morning, yeah. that's what's going on in my head. I know Confidence it is, too. is the first choice. It's working, man. Okay. You, with your confident tone, are going to start this off, so I'm going to give you the action. I'd ask you if you're ready, but I know you are. That's right. And action. Listen, I'm in town on a real estate deal. Closing. One night. I've got five steps to make. Collect signatures, see some friends. Then I got a 6 a.m. out of LAX. Why don't you hang with me? Car's not for hire, man. That's against regs. Regulations? Yep. These guys don't pay you sick leave. How much you pull down a shift? Ooh. How much? 350 400 Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. I'll make it 600 Oh, man. I don't know. What's an extra hundred? You get me to LAX and I don't have to run for the plane. I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah, you do. I don't know. Yeah, you do. 600? Cool. We got a deal. Here's 300 down. What's your name? Ray. Ray, I'm Joel. And? And scene. scene. Okay. Uh, I, don't I, think I, I don't think I had the vocalization, but no. I, I think I might have had the confidence. You had the confidence, but here's the thing. For me, I think you're really going to throw people because there was there was no hint of the actor you were portraying in that scene, <laughs> not in the voice. There was a hint. There was a hint of a younger, more confident Jack Nicholson. Oh, interesting. That's what I heard. I okay. wonder if I'm alone well, on that. Here's a clue, everyone. Jack Nicholson is nowhere <laughs> involved Jack in this movie. <laughs> If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title and your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline, you do have a while, is Monday, December 10th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. When I started, I was surprised at what I was capable of. How easy it was. Shockingly. Yet I assured myself there were some things I would never do. Money was motivation, which, once there was enough, could be used to buy another life. Another lie we told ourselves. When, for example, was the last time you bothered to ask yourself why someone in your sights was so thoroughly despised? Unless you know the better. One man's cruelty is another man's pragmatism, that old chestnut. A bit more from David Fincher's The Killer there. We are going to have some spoiler killers talk here in a moment. We will warn you again. We'll we'll set it up. I promise when that happens. But first, we thought we would continue these shenanigans as we've been doing on recent shows. We love Letterboxd. We have lists over there. We like to rank filmographies. Why not just assess on air where we think this new film from David Fincher belongs. Josh, David Fincher, you are one over on Letterboxd who doesn't like to rank a filmography until you have seen everything. You're a completist in that way. If I've seen enough that I've got a pretty good sense of the filmmaker or think I do, I'll go ahead and rank 
the ones I've seen and note the ones that are blind spots for me. In the case of David Fincher, I have seen all of these films in order. Alien 3, 7, The Game, Fight Club, Panic Room, Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, Mank, and of course, The Killer. I know you have pulled up your letterboxed list, your David Fincher ranking. I would love to know what deliberations you're having, if any, about where to put the killer and where did you ultimately slot it? Yeah, the deliberations are that we really do need to do. And I know we've talked about this, an overview of David Fincher. I do. Yeah. You probably don't. I do just knowing, looking at my rankings and there's some stuff that's, I mean, they're my rankings. There's always going to be some bizarre stuff, but there's some bizarre stuff that I'm not entirely comfortable with, which, you know, mostly relates to Zodiac only being at number four. And that's, I can just say that's wrong. I, I know needing to revisit that film, it should be higher. Fincher's strange for me. You know, there's a time where I would have said that this was my favorite working filmmaker right around the time of Zodiac and the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, even though I underrated, liked Zodiac, of course I did when it came out, even though I underrated it at the time, still, you know, just was completely in for everything Fincher was doing. Oddly, it was Social Network where that began to change. Again, a film I liked, have not seen in a long time. And I think I just expected something more about social media. And it took me a while to adjust that this is, again, need to revisit, but struck me as more of a character study piece. Okay. All that to say is the killer was fairly easy for me to slot in where I have these handful of Fincher films I love, and then a very big middle ground of films I appreciate. That's where the killer is. And then beyond that are some that you know, I know just aren't me or also need to revisit. So behind, behind the killer, I have Mank, I have the game, I have Alien 3, and I have the girl with the dragon tattoo. I've got Fight Club at number one. My zag is Curious Case of Benjamin Button at number two. It's the oddball in his filmography that I absolutely love and think works how he wants it to work. And yeah, so that's that's where I'm at. I, I imagine we have very different Fincher lists. Yeah. It sounds like we probably do. Give me again. I know you said it, but I was trying to process all of that. What number out of 12 then does the killer sit at? Yeah, yeah. So it puts killer at eight, which sounds bad, but ahead of it, I have mm -hmm. just ahead of it. I have Gone Girl and then seven social network and Zodiac. I both have above it, which some people probably have like one and two. Right. And then yes. I guess my my other zag is Panic Room at three. Love Panic Room. That's probably where I was at my most like Fincher fanboy moment is when that came out. I have revisited it since, and I think it holds up and stands out with the Jodie Foster performance. And then Benjamin Button 2, Fight Club, as I said, one. Okay, so for me, this was both hard, you'll understand why in a second, and also easy in that I at least knew where it fit in terms of my tiers. It is not in my top the killer is not in my elite Fincher tier. And I have five movies in that tier and I could rearrange them as you can do with a lot of great filmmakers and a lot of great films. I could rearrange them often every day and have a new list. In fact, when Sophie and I were just having this conversation off the top of our heads without looking at this list, I told her, well, seven is still my number one 
I'm pretty sure I've got seven is my favorite Fincher still. And then she brought up the list. And at some point I had actually slotted Zodiac ahead of it. I'm going to go ahead and put seven back in my number one slot. It's still, I think it's my favorite Fincher. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with that. It's the one I think about still the most Zodiac two social network three. And I actually do have gone girl ahead of fight club. I've got gone Hmm. girl at four, four and a half star movie for me, my number two or three movie of 2014. So it's at number four and fight club. I've got it five, but I could put fight club at, two or three, maybe even at one on some days. So I just look at that as one big elite Fincher tier. I then have a middle set of three films. I'll name in a second that are in that next tier. Very good. Before going to a little bit of a step down, good movies, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo at nine, Panic Room at 10. I like Panic Room, but I've got it at 10. Again, I just love all these movies more. I've got The Curious Case of Benjamin Button 11. I've got Alien 3 at 12. I know it is very popular to put Benjamin Button that low. I've probably said this before on the show, but when I think back to that review in 2008, I was pretty kind to it. There are things I definitely didn't appreciate about it, but... I remember just being blown away by Kate Blanchett's performance and, and that character. And that, that was enough that that relationship was enough for me. So even though I've got it at 11, I don't think of it as a bad movie. It's not a movie that I, I regularly tried to disparage Josh. So alien three is the only Fincher movie. And I know some people have reappraised that recently and it's got a little bit of a following. It's still for me, the only Fincher film that doesn't totally work. So that makes 11 other pretty good films. So the killer for me is right in that middle pack, six, seven, or eight with Mank and with the game. The game for me is one of those Fincher films that I think tends to be pretty low on a lot of lists. And I really love that film. So looking at my list now, I've got the game behind Mank, but I maybe like the game more if I'm really thinking about it. And I don't know what to do with the killer six, seven or eight, Josh, that's where it's, where it is. It's not in that tier. The killer for me could be ahead of Mank in the game, or I could slot it in the middle. I'm not really sure. I think I'm going to go with, I think I'm going to go with just based on recency bias here, the killer six, the game seven Mank is getting dropped down to eight. That's my venture ranking. That's my venture ranking. And I like all those films quite a bit. All four stars are above. Yeah, not that positive on Mank, but I was positive on it. But I think The Killer is a more, it's a more complete vision. For me, at least, Mank had had some challenges and difficulties amongst its many impressive attributes, where at least The Killer is, it's, it's focused, it's lean, it knows what it wants to do, and it does it. Great transition. If you are listening to the words I'm saying... You have now entered <laughs> spoiler territory. Warning. Warning. We need Warning. we need some creepy music here. Sam can add that in. It's spoiler territory. If you have not seen the killer, do not listen or listen at your own peril. I did jot down a few questions that I wanted to talk about with you, even though I feel like I now have a take on these. I have my own answers to these questions. That doesn't mean that I feel like I 
have it nailed. And I am definitely curious, Josh, where you stand on a couple of these things. And maybe you have your own question or two that you'd like to get into. The one I think I want to start with is the question that we danced around a little bit in our review proper. And that question is, what is your read on why he doesn't kill the client at the end? And did it work for you? I don't, I don't have a read on that. That's my open question. My guess from what you said before is you, you see this as a character with some empathy always existing inside him that he tries to deny or tamp down. And that's the final expression of it, which tracks. I can see that, but yeah, I still think even, and this goes back to the other killing we were talking about the secretary who asks that for life insurance purposes, essentially that he can't make it look like a suicide, right? She has family depending on her funds. And so he ends up essentially snapping her neck, pushing her down the stairs as an empathetic gesture. And that's probably a less safe choice than making it look like a suicide. I would agree to your point, Mm -hmm. but it still is a choice that covers him, right? He can get away. It still looks like an, an accident of a different kind. Now, I think this, I think that pair of killings, we're getting a little bit off. I want to return to the last client because that is an open question for me. I want to hear your response. But I think that pair of killings, his lawyer who connects him with clients. Charles Parnell, the actor. Yep, yes. And the secretary. There's no way. This, this to me shows that he's really lost it and he's not the professional he's telling us in his voiceover. There's no way you kill those two people at the same time within the same 24 hours and get away with it not being connected, right? So he could make it look like a suicide for her. He could make it look like she fell down the stairs. If her boss is murdered and she's found dead, unless he had arranged, and this would have been the sociopathic way, to your point, maybe he thought about this and decided not to do it, arranged for it to be some sort of murder-suicide between the two of them, like a a crime of passion type thing, he's going to have people trying to figure out who did this, right? So that's a very tricky situation there in killing those two people in such close time proximity. But yeah, I want to hear your theory on the the client at the end. It's not a sympathetic Mm -hmm. guy, right? This is some businessman who, I mean- Come on, he lives in Trump Tower, right? If you're judging from if you, if you know the Chicago <laughs> landscape there, I, I my impression is he lives in Trump Tower, so immediately bad guy, we got to assume, right? And why does he spare him? Yeah. Well, my answer that I'll eventually come to for me anyway also explains the previous dilemma that you bring up. It explains why he does have to kill those two. And you raise an interesting point, like If he's really worried, I suppose, on some level about getting caught, then killing both of them opens him up to that or inquiries. But he also rightly points out earlier that sheer fatigue by by the police and being overwhelmed means that they don't explore these things often that closely. And with the job she's doing for that guy, the actress here, Carrie O'Malley, is Dolores. The job she's doing, we don't, she's very good. And Josh, we don't even know that she's on the books doing that job, right? Who knows? He's involved in so much in terms of it being nefarious. But but at that point, it's one of these contradictions, again, that for me isn't really a contradiction. It's just 
the nature of this movie and this character that he knows better in a lot of cases, but still does what he believes he needs to do. So for him, he's not thinking too much about, oh, is someone going to connect the dots here? It's both of these people have to die. And I'll explain to you why I think from his sense, they both have to die. But in his mind, they both have to die and he's not coming back to town. <laughs> so he's going to do it. And the the fact is, I don't know what he would have done, but there's a clear implication that she points out that it would be easier for him to to do this in a way that rouses the least amount of suspicion. And and whatever his first instinct would be, he goes against it. Even if it still bails him out in the end, he goes against it and does do what she asks. So for yeah. me, it's still that that enough of an act of empathy as deranged as it as it is. So yes, you nailed it in terms of my initial read on the character or that that decision he makes with that character, how it fit into my overall view of the film. I'm thinking if what's driving his revenge tour, if we call it that is he's killing anyone who was involved in slash responsible for the hit that was put out on him and the suffering that was inflicted upon his girlfriend, then the client would seem to be a pretty important figure to take down, right? Mm -hmm. It was his go ahead and his payment. And he doesn't dispute that whether he was aware that he was initiating it or not. It was him that directly led to what happened to her at his home in the Dominican yeah. Republic. And so at first I did think it was more of a philosophical decision versus a practical one. This whole movie again has been about this killer constantly professing to be cold and unempathetic, but in reality taking a lot personally and showing some empathy. So when the client says that he didn't even know what he was agreeing to and the killer believes him because this is clearly not a grim reaper coming to collect sort of scenario like it is with the other two. You know, he has that line. He says, I'm curious. I break into your home in the middle of the night with a silenced pistol and you have no idea why I might be here. It, it's not really a question. It's rhetorical, right? That proves to him that this guy had no sense this was coming whatsoever. So then sure. the, the killer, the killer shows mercy because you could argue no part of the client's choice was personal. Maybe that's it. Maybe that mm -hmm. isn't, but upon further reflection, I do think it's more driven by practicality because the one key difference between the client and everyone else we see get killed is that he is not a threat. Everyone else that he kills knows where he lives or has access to that information. The brute and the expert theoretically could still be trying to find him to finish the job they were hired for. Even the one that first didn't make sense to me now makes total sense to me. Leo, the taxi driver seems like a poor, innocent guy shows no empathy for him when he coldly kills him and walks away from the car. The problem is Leo knows where he lives right. and that information could be used again. So the killer is purely pragmatic or at least largely pragmatic. He doesn't kill or tries not to kill without purpose. In his mind, there's absolutely no fear the client will ever seek him out. He certainly wasn't. He agreed to spend the 150K for just an assurance from that lawyer. And that, again, speaks to this kind of dispassionate nature of business. It's like, hey, for $150,000, we'll make that go away. Okay, mm -hmm. you can have it. He doesn't even ask what he's doing or, or again, get any guarantee for his money. He's just like, okay, you're going to tie up the loose ends. Great. Here's 150K. And 
he just blew the money because that's how easy it is to make those kinds of calculations. He cannot get that information from anyone. Anyone who had it is now dead. And that guy will never come after him. So he has no reason to die. That's my reading. And he has to kill the other two because no matter how wonderfully nice she may be or how much she begs for her life or says, I'll never use this against you. As long as she can access the truth about him, she's a threat. Certainly tracks. As you're talking, I'll just throw this out there too, however, and it goes back to my initial reading, which, as I said, started from the minute he missed the shot in Paris, and my impression was he missed it because he was talking too much. Yeah. I don't think this guy's as good at his job as he thinks, and maybe this is his biggest mistake because you're right. He This client does not have as many tangible, immediate connections but he clearly has already demonstrated he has the power and resources. So that's what I was thinking in the moment is like, this seems like a nice, terrible man. <laughs> like yeah. a, a guy who has hired multiple contract killers. Yes. Yeah. He seems pretty nice for that right. sort of guy. He could just, but he doesn't kill for those reasons. He just doesn't. But, but the point is like, he has the power to have arranged all of that. So this guy has his home broken into like this. Mm-hmm. Does he sit back the next morning and think, well, we talked that out? I actually think he does, Josh, because that no, goes back he's... to, yeah, no, he does. That goes back to the whole point. First of all, I think everything about his demeanor and the way he behaves suggests that he's a businessman. Exa- he's a, he's a wheeler exactly right. and dealer and but he's Josh, playing it goes back to the money. The killer. He, he was willing to spend $150,000 and it didn't mean a thing to him. So now that the job didn't happen and this guy is still out there, I guarantee you He does not care enough about this to continue to explore it, and especially he won't when he knows that guy can get to him. He is sufficiently scared, and he can't – the thing is he'll never – he can't ever find him. The only people who know are dead, the only ones. Yeah, but he doesn't know that. What's his first comment? But our our killer does. Our killer does, though. Hang on. What's his first comment is something about, oh, I great security in this place. What he has paid for has failed. So when this guy has a problem, he finds a way to pay for it to be taken care of. And again, I see him. I don't know. We don't know what his business is, right? But he's, if he's gotten to be that wealthy, he's a hardcore negotiator of some kind. That whole interaction with the two of them is a negotiation. It's all about what's going to get me out of this room alive. And is a person like that going to, as I said, just be like, okay, I got out of that room alive. I'll, I'll just hope this guy, this yes. psychotic guy who showed up through all of my security, right. <clears throat> nothing I could do about, he'll never show up again. He'll never change his mind. I can sleep tight. No, this guy's going to throw every dollar he has at you're, finding him. You're treating him like, a, like he's Lex Luthor or he's like some James Bond villain. That's not the guy we meet. That's just not the guy we meet. Again, once again, he's, too he's negotiating. No, he's negotiating he's not. in that moment. I'm not saying this is rock solid. I mean, you're, yeah, you're no, I get it. Reading get is totally it. fine, but it does fit in with my, again, understanding of this movie constantly undermining the clinical, calculated, I'm two steps ahead of the game decision-making that the killer is presenting himself as being capable of. And in here, this is his final decision. And if the movie's all about undermining his decisions 
it would make it could sense be a that his up. last decision yes. is the best is the worst it could one. Be a, it could be a slip up and it could be driven more by the fact that he is actually more empathetic or at least he's he's so driven by what personally happened to him that he's not willing to kill that person who didn't personally try to do anything to him even right. though inadvertently he well, that, did but that leads but, to another yeah. question i want to ask you about did you did you get the impression that the his partner his romantic partner who we see him sitting by the pool yes. at and let me just add we'll get for there. a contract killer another idiotic choice like the worst safe house you could ever are there like any walls in this sure. dominican republican beach house each <laughs> okay it's, i do want to go back no to how protection. good he is at his job though in a second before we move on from that. But do you have a, another point? No, just the question I had is like, did you, did you get the impression she it's all, it's all again, this genre beat, like, was she his partner, romantic partner before, mm-hmm. or was she just his housekeeper? And did he come to care for her that much? And then when we see them at the end, it had, the relationship had been extended. I don't have a yeah, strong feeling either I, way. I think the movie is ambiguous about that. I think, I think I too, maybe initially thought she was watching over the house. That's why she was there. We have no sense that he's romantically involved with anyone. Right, but, right. But the fact that I guess it's one of those things that I reverse engineered where I decided that the movie is suggesting based on his response, based on his response to to live up to saying this will never happen again. Yeah. Um, and being actually more at least human in that regard, having feelings for someone. And then at the end, them being together, that did suggest to me that that wasn't just like, oh, they became romantically involved. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like it was there. And that and makes I, more sense. Yeah. I do want to go back, you know, cause this is another one of those potential contradictions. My whole point and read on the film is that he's constantly saying he's this kind of killer and never is. And so the movie is playing with this notion and he does mm-hmm. in the very first scene that we watch screw up colossally. Mm-hmm. But I guess I, I want to at least throw out the idea that I don't think we can be too glib about suggesting he's not an expert at what he does. And, and that's well, he's again, gotten kind of, to this point. Well, yeah. yeah and and that the whole point is, is that, that this colossal of a mistake is what causes that, that unraveling because mm-hmm. we see him go to the bank He's got $8.9 million, I think is what I saw that he withdraws from the bank, give or take a few hundred thousand. You're not going to have that kind of money if you haven't, if you haven't earned it. Right. And he also says, if we take him at face value, he says at one point that if it wasn't for the, the guy who died before of, of natural causes before he could get to him, he was batting a thousand. So no, he's not a clown. It's, it's more about. The yeah. contrast, or as you've been saying, the contradiction right. of the inner monologue and the outer reality. Yes, but for me, that's kind of we're we're getting him. <laughs> I'm going to quote Fight Club here. You know, like you've met me at a really interesting time in my life. I feel like Fight Club ends with that line, and I feel like this movie begins with a character at a really interesting time in their life, and their the narration is what's what what tells us that about him that's that he's already sort of in in crisis a little bit. So anyway, okay, well, well, we dis- we maybe disagree, but overall I, I, that's my, that's my reading of the end. I don't think the guy cares that much and he'll be too afraid. Here's my other question about the ending and that scene at the beach. What is your read on why the last thing we see is his eye twitch slightly? Mm. So I missed that. Debbie caught it. We watched oh. it together. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, the, what the way she described it, if I'm remembering correctly, is like just he, he's 
he's not as in control as he's been pretending this whole time. You know, it's, it's again, this expression of leisure sitting by the pool, relaxing, and he's incapable of doing that. Yes. Yes. So, so that's, that's kind of where, where I'm at with it. Right. And maybe that is the obvious reading, but I think there's another alternate, maybe even more obvious reading. And that is that this character has, has explicitly said multiple times how he's, he is one of the few, or he suggests that he's one of the few, not the many, the few who exploit the many who are taken advantage or who do the taking advantage of. They're not the, the sheep out there, right? Getting slaughtered. And, and that's what he seems to suggest he is. He makes his own rules. He's essentially created his own moral universe. He doesn't operate within the same confines as all the rest of us schlubs, right? And at the end, he's ostensibly out of the business, right? He's, he's buried all, you know, all of his tracks. He's taken his money. He's sitting there with the woman he seems to love, relaxing on the beach. And he not only is in his actions seeming to embrace being one of the many, which I don't know that Fincher's going here, but I'll even just say so many of us that are just like living, all of us living day to day, just trying to get through the grind, pay our bills, live with our families, be happy. Like vacations on the beach are the thing we strive for. Like some people even will say like, oh, I work so I can, you know, make enough money and I can get time off and I can go with my family and have an amazing vacation. That's what I look forward to. You know, so even that's in my mind to some extent when then he's now one of the many sitting there with his view, you know, and and it seems to be this embrace of being one of the many. So the eye twitch could be the psychological gesture that expresses this transition he's making because going back to Fassbender's performance, he has spent the entire movie almost literally never blinking being this robotic sort of machine or at least claiming to be that and trying to portray it. Right. And so then at, at the very end, maybe the eye twitch is just like his eye is finally like <laughs> it, it. it's saying, okay, you're, you, you're not going to do it anymore. You can't be that. You can't try to be that character anymore. You're, the eye is going to move. The twitch then isn't negative so much or, or it's suggestive of any dissatisfaction with his new chosen path. I wonder if that's a reading of the film. For me, I can't get over the fact that it's a twitch. It's, it's a stunted blink. It's a tightening. It's a constriction. It yeah. seems like it's the, it's the body betraying something, again, contradictory. And, and contradictory to what? To the pleasant scene we're watching. What's more pleasant than sitting there with a the woman you love looking out at the beautiful water and the sand, right? And so I read it as the machine fighting to reassert itself. It's as someone who's, whose view of human nature comes almost entirely from Christopher Nolan's memento. I, I think that regardless of, of what he says and quite likely even consciously believes in that moment, I fear that the loss of purpose and the loss of routine and the loss of structure that his profession demanded of him is going to completely short circuit him sooner rather than later. He's going to, he's going to become, he is truly going to become the, one of the many who's exploited by the few and he's fighting his body. His body is fighting against that with that twitch at the end. Yeah. I mean, you've lived a life like that. You can't just set it aside or put it behind, right? It's, it's going to come out in some way. And even if you're in the most idyllic setting, uh, and th I think that's how we all experience it. I, I have that the thing where like you'll be brushing your teeth at night. You think you're relaxed, ready to go to bed. And, and like you look in the mirror and like, wh what's go like, 
Why uh-huh. is that pulsing there? <laughs> like, I feel pretty chill. What's going on there? Uh-huh. And so it's like, yeah, it, it's hard not to read when something akin to that is represented in a film as something that's like, oh, there's something underneath that's troubling right. that's yeah. trying to come out, which which yeah. I think it sounds like is where you're at, which that makes is. sense to me. Yeah. One, one last quick one, um, because I did, I thought about this stuff. I said, okay, I, I have these questions. I want to come up with my answers, but then I know there are going to be these explainers out there, and I, I, I want to see how my my theories jive. And I was surprised, Josh, because with I, I don't remember the details or even the links, but I'll just say there were at least three instances where I read something where I go, that's not at all how I feel about the ending. Like usually when I read those explainers after seeing a film and thinking about it, they usually corroborate what I'm thinking or maybe give me something to chew on, but don't contradict <laughs> word mm-hmm. of the day. They don't contradict my read. I read some takes on this on the internet that I was just like, I don't know what those people are talking about. That's not the movie I saw at all. And one small one I remember is someone, someone was answering the question like, why does he, why does he have that dinner with Tilda Swinton at all? Why does he go there and why does he do it? Mm -hmm. When, when is she even says there are so many other ways he could dispatch her that would expose him less than that. right? Right. And they said something like, which I just don't think this is any part of the film. They said something like, oh, he wanted to see how he stacked up against her as an assassin. I'm like, hmm. there's no ego at play here. That That's just, that's never, that was never a thought for me watching this film. I actually, I do have a, a small read on that, which I mm-hmm. think, I think it goes back to, well, it goes back to everything we're saying, including about the end of the film and that transition that he's making, whether completely... <laughs> It willfully how on board with it he is or not. I think it, it, it lies in that. And what he says about her, remember when he meets her and he says something about, or he's spying on her, he's, he's watching her and he, he kind of can't believe or is surprised that she lives like in beacon. She lives like in this, this really idyllic, you know, suburb of New York city. Yeah. And I actually don't know where it is. So if someone's listening and is going to tell me I'm wrong, but that's, that's what I got from it. Right. It's New York for sure. And he, he says something, I don't know what the exact line of dialogue is, but I believe he's legitimately fascinated by her because she is in theory, completely him, except yes, she's hiding who she is, but she's kind of not off the grid at all. She's basically just like, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to go to dinner and I'm going to, I'm going to do what everyone else does and have whiskey flights and try nice meals. And I'm just going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to be basically kind of this happy suburbanite, even if it's a little bit of a, a, a play. And I think he knows the trajectory that he's trying to get to and where he wants this movie to go. And I actually do think he probably has that dinner with her because he's curious and he wants to, he wants to learn more about her and he wants to actually, even if he's just watching and kind of taking it in, he wants to understand like what sort of makes her tick and how she's managed to live that, that double life for so long. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely tracks. I think it, it also tracks in being a miscalculation on his part. Again, a contrast with how he presents himself because it's absolutely true to your point. She points it out. There are other ways he could have done this. So it fits into the, you know, he's not the cool headed decision maker. He tells us he is in his voiceover, Mm -hmm. but also, I mean, it's just, 
it's a convention to get that great scene between <laughs> Tilda Swinton and Fassbender and, you know, release some of the, this movie is such a monologue and you almost need, it comes at the perfect point yeah, where does. you're about to be, the air has completely been taken up in the room by the voiceover. And I know a lot of people are out on the voiceover. I wasn't. We've talked about what it adds to it and the purpose behind it. But even I was grateful for a moment where two people were going to sit down together and look at each other and have a conversation. So there's that practical purpose as well. But I do think I do think the reading you have does make sense. I'd remind everyone who's listening to this, Josh, that The Killer is currently available on Netflix, but they know that already. They've seen it. They may they may want to go back now and see how our thoughts jive with their own. It is a film I actually am looking forward to revisiting. We would love to hear your thoughts. If you have any spoiler thoughts to share, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can send any comments about the show because that is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting and I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. We're asking you to pick one and only one Miyazaki film. Adam has subjected himself to this pain. I have subjected myself to this pain. It's time for you to decide as well. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com for as little as five bucks a month. You can listen to the show early and ad free. You can also get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. In those archives, you can find reviews of David Fincher's films going back to 2007's Zodiac, also a 9 from 99 review of Fight Club, and our top five David Fincher scenes. If you would like to hear us review a Marvel movie, it's happened. It's happened a lot. There's been a lot of them. We have done plenty going back to 2008's Iron Man, including Captain Marvel. You can find them all at filmspotting.net slash MCU if you are so inclined. And of course, filmspottingfamily.com is where you can find everything you need to know about becoming a member of the family. In limited release, you can see The Disappearance of Cher Height, a documentary about the feminist sex educator whose 1976 book, The Height Report, altered perspectives on female sexuality. It's directed by Nicole Newnham, who made Crip Camp. Letterbox Mia Vicino calls it invigorating and hopeless. Interesting. Dream Scenario is out as well. Nicolas Cage is a man who becomes an overnight celebrity after appearing in the dreams of everybody on Earth. Streaming, you can see Please Don't Destroy, The Treasure of Foggy Mountain. This is the debut feature from SNL's digital short trio. It's on Peacock. George C. Wolf and Coleman Domingo reunite. They made Ma Rainey's Black Bottom together. Here they've come together for Rustin, the story of the gay civil rights activist Bayard Rustin. That's on Netflix. You can also see streaming, Stamp from the Beginning, director Roger Ross Williams' documentary adaptation of Ibram X. Kendi's best-selling book about the roots and evolution of American racism. Guess what? Also on Netflix. Here are some that aren't on Netflix. In wide release, you can see The Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, a Hunger Games prequel, with Rachel Zegler, Viola Davis, Jason Schwartzman, and Peter Dinklage. Good cast. Next goal wins. More Fassbender. Fassie's back, though. Yes, he is. I, I think I'm going to skip this one. It's Taika Waititi's underdog soccer story set in American Samoa. Thanksgiving, Eli Roth's feature adaptation of the trailer he made for Grindhouse. And I think I think they're just trolling us now. 
Trolls band together. It's it's the third or fourth Trolls film. I love in our notes when it says the third or fourth, as if we couldn't confirm that. <laughs> I mean, the third it, or it fourth. Gets, it gets a little confusing after Trolls 2. Yeah. Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake. And now I'm firmly expecting, Josh, a little inside joke, to get an email from the director of Trolls Band together. <laughs> Next week, happy Thanksgiving to all. And you will get... I don't know. What is it? It's it's not stuffing that comes with the meal. What's what's a go-to? We, we're a big olive tray family, you know, relish tray mm. with olives and pickles. What what do you do as an appetizer on Thanksgiving, Josh? Uh, it depends which family members I'm with, but maybe like a giant glass of wine. <laughs> okay. Well, we will try to give you a giant glass of wine in Alexander Payne's The Holdovers. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.